Seven months after Russia intervened militarily in Ukraine, we will talk about the state of Russian-Chinese relations. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Marco Fernandez. He's a researcher at the Tricontinental Institute for Research. He's a member of the Dongsheng News Collective, and he is an organizer with the No Cold War Collective. Marco, welcome to The Socialist Program. Thanks a lot, Brian. Such an honor to be here with you. Well, we're very happy you're able to join. You're, we're talking to you from Beijing, and you've been living in China for a couple of years, you're with the Dongsheng News Collective. We urge everyone who's watching this show to subscribe to your newsletter, very, very important, especially for those who are relying or are forced to rely on Western capitalist media for news. Having Dongsheng News Collective is a welcome sort of antidote because you give the news, the voices of people in China. So again, for everyone, subscribe to Dongsheng News. Marco, we want to talk about the state of Russia-Chinese relations. This is a very important relationship. Two major countries, both members of the Security Council. In 1949, when the Chinese Revolution succeeded, Mao Zedong left China for the first and only time in his life to visit Moscow, where there were months of discussions between Mao and Stalin. And it wasn't just the two leaders. There was a large entourage of Chinese specialists and political figures who were there talking with the Soviets. And at the end of that journey, there was the creation of a Soviet-China friendship agreement and an alliance, and it became sort of a core, a center of politics in the post-World War II era. It was the time when the socialist camp came into existence. And during that entire period, or at least the first decades, you have China, Russia, many other countries as well. Two-fifths of the world's population were living in countries where the governments were basically under the control of communist parties or communist and socialist forces. And then the China-Soviet relationship frayed. It became a political and ideological struggle starting in the late 1950s. It devolved into a state-to-state -state dispute. It became a cornerstone for what comes later including the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union, the implosion or the overthrow of the socialist government in the Soviet Union. So this was a vital part of global politics. And here we are 30 years after the Soviet Union was no more. China and Russia are very, very close. Once again, they have a real alliance. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to go into depth about what that alliance is because in the Western media, for those getting their news from the Western media, all of the stories are about why the relationship is not durable, why it will self-destruct under pressure. We're going to talk about what's really true about this. But before we do our main topic, I have to ask you, everything in the media for the last two weeks 
in the West and in India was about a coup d'etat in China, where you are, in Beijing. And that Xi Jinping, the leader of the Communist Party, the head of state, was under house arrest. And that there was a military coup. Now, none of that is true, but it became, well, very, very significant in terms of media coverage all over the world. What happened? Well, to be honest, I don't know. I'm still walking in the streets in Beijing. I'm four kilometers from Xi's house. So I was trying to find some tanks, some signs of coup, but I don't think they're happening. It's actually crazy, Brian, because, I mean, if you go to the story, actually everything started, looks like, with a tweet from a Falun Gong member living in U.S. and has like, I don't know, less than 200,000 followers. But of course, this created like a big wave. And to be honest, I mean... This is what the right wing, stream right wing has been doing in the last years, right? I mean, the whole thing about fake news and social media and spreading this and sometimes also, I mean, setting a trap to the left because <laughs> most of the times the left is like putting so much energy to rebuke, to respond to this fake news that this is maybe something that we should think more about it. So I think... Of course, there's a lot of wishful thinking, right, <laughs> in this repercussion and how much this created a big wave of headlines. I mean, I'm seeing like, oh, I didn't know that Newsweek put it there. This is, wow, this is amazing. There was a time that Newsweek used to do journalism, but that was probably a long time ago. So, I mean, I don't know. Here in China, people are just laughing about it because, to be honest, I mean, I don't think Xi Jinping was ever in this last 10 years so solid in his position Remember that we are a few days before the Congress. The 20th National Congress of Communist Party starts October 16th, in a few days. And I mean, all the analysis here inside of China is that she has absolutely consolidated his leadership. You know that she is now considered officially by the party as the core of the party. This is like a very strong word for Chinese politics. Actually, we're going to talk about this because this is the same word that she used a few days ago in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting to talk about China-Russia relations. We'll talk about that. So, right, the core, the anchor, the center, and of course, the characterization of Xi as the center, the core is important. We'll talk about it, Russian-China relations and central and core to the outlook and the world sort of stance of the People's Republic of China. We want to talk about that. The reason I wanted to start with these false rumors about Xi Jinping being under house arrest and a coup undertaken is that unless people actually know what's going on, they can be duped, they can be tricked, they can be confused at the minimum by Western media or by intelligence operations that find a way into the Western media. And we've talked in the past about John Stockwell, who was the CIA station chief in Angola during that war after the fall of the Portuguese fascist regime and the liberation movements in Angola, Mozambique. And he talked about how the CIA would create stories, create fake stories, leak them to journalists, including in very prestigious media outlets, and then they would be reproduced, and then they would seem like good coin and they would be reproduced and they would actually flood the media market. So the CIA created this fake news because 
it was sort of having a dominant effect on narrative. So I wanted to mention it in the beginning because when we read the media coverage of the Russia-China relationship, you would think, based on recent coverage, that the relationship is on its last legs. For instance, at the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit, a great deal of media was provided about Modi, the head of state of India, telling Putin, you know, now is not the era of war, and Putin saying publicly to Xi Jinping, we understand your concerns about Ukraine and the war in Ukraine. And that's being presented in the Western media as clear evidence that Russia is becoming very, very isolated because its most important international friends are publicly rebuking it. So that's why I really want people to think about, you know, when you hear something, when you see something, don't necessarily take it as the truth. Anyway, let's get your comments. And then I want to talk to you about how China is viewing the war in Ukraine and also how China is viewing the current referenda that's taking place in the eastern part of Ukraine, where people are being asked, do they want to leave Ukraine and affix the eastern region, the Donbass region to Russia? But let's start first with the media coverage of what happened with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Yeah, that's a good point, Brian, because it was the same. I mean, we're following closely here, all the headlines of Financial Times and New York Times, etc. So I'll just give a couple of examples of what happened a few days right before the meeting itself, the summit in Samarkand in Uzbekistan. So a few days before that, there was the Eastern Economic Forum that happened in Vladivostok, Russia. So not so much people know in the West that the person who attended, the chief of delegation of China, was Li Jiangshu. Li Jiangshu, probably not so known, but he is the number three of Communist Party of China. He's actually, for some analysts here, he is probably the closest ally of Xi. He is actually in the same level because, I mean, in China you have the position in the state, but you have like um, administrative position. So, so Li is in the same level as Xi Jinping. So this is one of the most important leaders of China. He's been in Vladivostok. He met with Putin a few days before the meeting. So then, and actually he announced some of the next agreements, economic agreements that China and, and Russia would do. So then you have Xi and Putin meeting for the first time, right, since the Olympics in February here. Right after the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, I think on like one or two days after that, Yang Jiechi, who is the member of a standing committee, and he is actually the head of the foreign relations of China, he met with Nikolai Patrushev, who is the head of Security Council. So this gives you uh, like a sense of what is the level of relationship between China and Russia? So you had in a few days the number three of the party, and then you had right after you had the head of foreign affairs of China meeting with high level of Putin, even like Li Jiangshu also went to the Duma to meet with Volodin. So, I mean, there's no reason to suspect that this relationship is not very solid at this point. 
Yeah, indeed. Let's talk about Ukraine and the Ukraine war. The Russian special military operation, as the Russians call it, everybody in the West calls it the invasion of Ukraine. That happened on February 24th of 2022. From our point of view, from the point of view of this show, while yes, Russia intervened, we know and we've discussed and assessed and analyzed that this conflict didn't start really on February 24th, 2022. It really started earlier with NATO expansion. It started earlier with the 2014 US-backed coup d'etat that overthrew a neutral government in Ukraine. Anyway, we know about that. But the point that I'm getting to is that Ukraine was part of the Belt and Road Initiative. China has wanted to have good relations with European nations. It wants to have follow the UN Charter, which upholds the sovereignty of different nations. The Chinese and the Russians met together when Putin went to the Beijing Olympics, and they issued a statement, a joint statement on February 4th, 2022, just 20 days prior to the Russian military action in Ukraine, and there's a 5,000-word-long joint statement was issued, and it's been talked a lot about in the West because the formulation, the one at least the Western media picks up on, is the two sides say that their relationship between the two countries is a relationship without limits. Now, that sounds like, without knowing what the real language is, it sounds like, okay, we're just in it together, we're going to be allies forever and on all things. But obviously, the Russian military action in Ukraine was a complicating factor, certainly, for China. And complicating because, again, China wants to uphold the UN Charter, which recognizes territorial integrity and sovereignty. Also, the Chinese want good relations with Ukraine. China has, in fact, sent humanitarian goods or some sort of exercise of humanitarian support for Ukraine. And at the same time, China has gone out of its way not to condemn the Russian invasion. It abstained rather than voted no on the UN resolution that the U.S. offered that condemned Russia. Anyway, first of all, do you think China was tipped off by Putin? Did they have a heads up that there would be a military intervention? And secondly, let's just talk about China's own approach to this issue of Ukraine. And then I want to ask you, after you finish, a follow-up question about the referenda. Sure. Well, about the first question, to be honest, it's hard to know. I mean, if you're not in the meeting, we don't have enough information. As we say in Brazil, I wish I was a, a little fly to be in that room and to be able to listen to the conversation. So it's really hard to know. I mean, the official position of both sides is that they didn't discuss this operation at that point. So it's hard to rebuild that. But I mean, again, I think China, for instance, you made a good point about the vote in United Nations. So China abstained, didn't like support Russia in the official vote. But, you know, I mean, if you talk with diplomats, this is a, a very common thing in United Nations or this kind of international forums is that I mean, not necessarily when you abstain, you're just trying to keep like a sort of a neutral position at that point, also to be able to negotiate. And I think China never gave up this possibility of being a negotiator. But I think it's clear, for instance, I was talking about the meeting between Li, the number three of Chinese Communist Party, and Duma with Volodin, the president of Duma. He was very clear. 
in the speech. And this was like the front page of People's Daily here in China that day, is that China recognizes the secured rights of every nation, but China also recognizes that in that case, the expansion of NATO, the threat represented to Russia, national security, gave Russia no other option. So I think at this point, China is very clear. I mean, China, of course, wants the end of the war. Nobody wants the war. I mean, nobody wants the war at this side of the planet. We can't say the same about Western powers and especially about the industrial military complex in the United States. But clearly China wants a peaceful negotiation. But at this point, also China recognized that it's really hard. The West is not giving a good chance for the peaceful solution. Yeah, very important to sort of have that understanding. So China, as in its diplomacy, and diplomacy is its own thing, you know, the diplomats are not necessarily signaling the actual governmental position at any particular moment. What they're signaling is where they have sort of etched out a position in the larger scheme of diplomacy, either between countries or on a regional or a global scale. So China has not supported the invasion of or the special military operation in Ukraine, but it has decidedly not condemned those. It hasn't used the language of condemnation. And it says that it wants a peaceful settlement. The statement between China and Russia that was issued after Putin and Xi Jinping met at the Olympics, and again, this statement came out February 4th, 2022, 20 days before Russia entered Ukraine, that statement highlights the fact that both sides recognize that NATO expansion to the east is provocative, it's dangerous, and it threatens the prospect of a larger military confrontation. So there's China issuing a joint statement with Russia, basically affirming Russia's contention that the problem isn't anything other than NATO expansion and the attempt to integrate the countries of Eastern Europe, including one would have to think Ukraine, because that was the hot topic at that moment, integrating Ukraine into NATO. So China is saying, yeah, we are actually with Russia on this. And the statement also says that both sides recognize that Taiwan is part of China. And of course, this comes in the context a very aggressive acts by U.S. government officials. This was before Pelosi's visit, obviously, in August to Taiwan. But both sides recognize that Taiwan is also part of China and that those who try to separate Taiwan are playing with fire, so to speak. In other words, there's an act of solidarity and two very vital security issues that confront both countries. Anyway, that hasn't changed. No, I don't think so. It's clear at this point that U.S. probably won't stop the provocations in Taiwan. And of course, this is a very scary situation for the whole planet, because we know that there's a, lots of reasons for United States, from their perspective, to escalate the provocations. But And even like right now, I mean, just a few days ago, it was just approved by Biden or the Congress or both already, this new sales of $4.5 billion of weapons to Taiwan. So this is a big concern for, for everybody in the world right now. It's clear at this point that China and Russia have a very sync position on this. And again, it's a defensive position. 
because at this point, NATO is clearly not going to stop. And also, remember that the last meeting of NATO was the first time that Australia, Japan, South Korea, and New Zealand attended the meeting. So even this discussion about expanding NATO to Asia, which at this point is the last thing that we need, but anyway, it doesn't think that NATO are going to stop to expand to the East. Yeah, and extending NATO by bringing Asian nations into NATO, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Clearly, the Pacific is not the Atlantic. It's not the North Atlantic. It's the Pacific. I mean, that can't be understood by China as anything other than a grave threat towards China, especially given the fact that the United States adopted with the quadrennial Pentagon report in 2018 that the priority now for the U.S. military was major power conflict. So the deployment of forces, the deployment of naval forces, air forces, ground forces, forces in outer space, all of that is designed to get ready, get ready for major power conflict, which of course means World War III. The war on terror was considered like old hat. Now it's gonna be a major power conflict. And then you see NATO expanding right up to Russia's borders. That's one great power. Threatening Russia, that's how Russia perceived it. Again, using Ukraine as a staging ground, perhaps for advanced nuclear and conventional missiles that would target Russia. And the U.S. doing the same thing, essentially, by incorporating or integrating, maybe not formally, but in essence, Asian nations into NATO. I mean, the Chinese have to be thinking of this with complete, absolute seriousness. This isn't like just negotiating. This isn't posturing. This is preparing for conflict. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, at the end of the day, one of the things that this whole situation is triggering is not only that China and Russia are probably in the closest relations they have, at least since the early 60s between the Sino-Soviet split, is not only that. And by the way, many of the geopolitical analysts, so-called realists in U.S. are already warning in the last year, two years, is that the most stupid thing you can do is to put Russia and China together and not putting an edge in between then, this is what, of course, we know U.S. did in the 70s with Harry Kissinger and Nixon, etc. But, but besides that, what I think is a huge contestation at this point of the U.S. domination. For China and Russia, it's clear that they also need more allies. The global south, it's going to be allies of China and Russia in this because this is the whole history of the whole global south in the last 500 years, I would say, but especially in the last seven, eight decades under the domination of the United States. So, I mean, one example, for instance, going back to this issue about oh, how Xi and Putin are doing and, and if they are close or not. I mean, there was, I don't know if you remember in June, we had two very important meetings in one week. We had BRICS meeting, BRICS summit that was here in Beijing. I mean, officially it was here, but it was mostly online. And we had NATO right after in Madrid. That week, that was very interesting because there was two speeches from Xi Jinping and Putin that happened like two days. First, on Wednesday, she published a speech in the party, the theoretical magazine of the party called Tusse. And it was very interesting because it was a speech that was actually made in February, but was not public yet. So in this speech, what basically she says is that the history of the West is the history 
of the exportation of chaos, destruction, and exploitation for the whole world in the last 500 years. So it couldn't be more clear. And one nuance here about the Chinese lexicon, for China, chaos, this is the political history of like 2,000 years, 3,000 years of political history of China. Chaos is more or less for us would be something like the devil or like the worst thing you can ever think is the chaos for a Chinese politician. So this is what she was framing. The West is actually the devil of the whole world in the last 500 years. And on Friday, two days after that, Putin was speaking in St. Petersburg Economic Forum. And he gave like a, a very strong speech, basically say, guys, your old order is over. I mean, he's been repeating that in the last months, but that was the first time he said that. And he said something very also significant. He said, you know, the problem of the West is that the West is hostage of its own illusions that they can treat the world, the whole world, as their backyard. And I mean, there's also a very important word, especially for us Latin America, that we are known historically as a U.S. backyard. So what Putin is basically saying is that, guys, I mean, this has to stop. And this illusions is destroying the West. For instance, now we are seeing especially what happened in Europe right now. I mean, the whole economy, it's collapsing <laughs> under the, the, by their own position, by their own acts. So I think it's really astonishing what West has been doing in the last, in the last months. But it's also very, very interesting to see how much China and Russia are reacting, but not reacting alone. And this also we can talk more. But the whole, all the regional platforms that both China and Russia are pushing in Eurasia, but also in Latin America, in Africa, etc. I think it's a new chapter that we are seeing. And probably in the next couple of years, there's going to be a lot of advance on that. Yeah, we've entered a new era in global politics. And I think the point of demarcation really was the Russian military intervention in Ukraine. Things start in an unpredictable way. You never know when one era ends and another starts, like what will be the trigger? What will be the catalyst? But I think clearly Russia knew it would be evicted or attempted to be evicted from the world economy, that it would be completely demonized, completely sanctioned. When you heard the comments of Western leaders, particularly the Biden administration, Biden himself and his chief foreign policy spokesperson, Anthony Blinken, they made it quite clear that, and also the Pentagon, the Secretary of Defense, basically saying, our goal is to weaken Russia. Russia knew all of this was going to come out, and yet they went forward. And the Chinese, this is my view anyway, that China thought of this intervention, military intervention, is a very unfortunate and complicating factor in terms of its own relations with the rest of the world, which are very important. I mean, China has pursued this policy of a peaceful rise, recognizing sovereignty, having win-win, meaning having a relationship with all kinds of countries that are ideologically very different from each other. But China has put a premium on trying to find things that are beneficial to the different relations. These are in bilateral relations, regional relations. So obviously, it's not what China wanted. But on the other hand, the relationship with Russia has not been sort of suspended. It hasn't been undone. In fact, there are lots of indications that the relationship is deepening. 
although there may be differences of opinion within the Chinese political establishment, I wouldn't doubt that. I mean, it's a, a party of more than 90 million people. I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure, and knowing the history of the political struggles in China as elsewhere, there are probably differences of opinion. But the leadership as of now, the leadership right now, the leadership of Xi Jinping, and again, on the eve of a party congress where he may have a third term as leader of the party and head of state, right now that relationship between Russia and China has been maintained and in fact is maybe growing. And I'm going to, in a minute or two, after I ask you this next question, talk about the specific ways in which the Russian-Chinese levels of cooperation are growing. But I want to go to the referenda back to the referenda in the eastern part of Ukraine, in the Donbass, where Russia has military sway on the ground, although it's not undiluted. I'm looking at the Global Times, which is a Chinese publication. It's not an official organ of the Chinese Communist Party, but it's often seen in the West as reflective of the official views of China. Although I think when you read Global Times, you can see that it's not one view either. But I want to read something, an article about the referenda and get you to help us dissect it. You'll be the China expert on this, Marco. So get ready. Here we go. <laughs> the U.S., this is Global Times, the U.S. and Western countries who support Kiev will face new pressure because after Russia's partial mobilization, it would be very difficult for Ukraine to regain control in these regions. This means Ukraine will ask for more direct support from the West to help it retake its lost territories. So the risk of direct conflict between Russia and NATO is rising, and the West needs to make a tough decision for this new situation amid the serious energy crisis, experts said. So we don't know the name of the experts, but they're quoting them. The majority of the international community may not recognize the referenda, in the same way they do not recognize Russia's control over Crimea since 2014. But it won't change the reality, said analysts, again, unnamed. Noting that the four referenda, four, F-O-U-R, this time will be different from Crimea's case because the conflict is still far from ending. So most members of the international community will continue to observe the situation and cautiously decide their next move. Here's the part that I want you to be able to respond to. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin said on Tuesday that, quote, China has always upheld the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all countries, and it should be respected. The purposes and principles of the UN Charter should be abided by the legitimate security concerns of all countries should be taken seriously. So on one hand, Marco, he's saying, the foreign minister's spokesperson is saying, we uphold the UN Charter, which would mean you can't go into another country and annex its territory. And at the same time, we recognize the legitimate security concerns of all countries. And that's obviously referring to Russia. So, I mean, Russia's fear that Ukraine will be a staging ground for NATO. So anyway, you are, for the moment, we'll appoint you a, to be a China expert and you can help our audience understand this language. Well, 
you should ask this to comrade Wang Yi, the, <laughs> the foreign minister of China. No, I think this is what China has been in many of these official speeches. They have been using this sort of neutral position. One thing that you learn from Chinese politics is that, I mean, it's everywhere, but there's a lot of things that you don't say, you do it. So, I mean, to be honest, I didn't see any, still any official position of China assessing directly the referenda. I think they're still discussing probably what's going to be the official position. Maybe in the next days we're going to have something. But at this point, I think we should just wait for a more concrete position from China. Of course, it's clear that at the end of the day, this is also like a big discussion for international politics. I mean, exactly what happened to Crimea. I mean, people are voting. And unless you say, okay, all these votes are a fraud and people are being coerced to go to a vote, they're like putting guns in their heads. Oh, if you don't vote, we're going to... I mean, I don't think this is happening right now. There's a lot of international observers in the all the regions. It's like four regions went to vote this week. So, I mean, people are... Of course, we're talking about Russian people. I mean, this is Russian people living in Ukraine and people, most of these people have been targeted in the last eight years. Many of these people were actually killed by Ukrainian neo-Nazis. So I don't think it's surprising that these Russians, that or actually some of them were forbidden to speak Russian in some of the territories. I don't think these Russians should not be listened. And again, I think it's, of course, U.S. and Europe are not going to recognize this. This is a war warfare. But I mean, at this point, it's clear that the people want to go back to Russia. The Chinese are also signaling, at least in this Global Times article, that the referenda itself, no matter what the outcome, and it's pretty clear that because it is a Russian language speaking part of Ukraine and historically the Donbass and the people who live there who are ethnically Russian you know, consider themselves to be part of Russia or have for a long time, that they'll vote in the majority to support affixing their area to Russia, to becoming part of Russia. I think we, we kind of know that. At the same time, it also means, and this is one of the points in the article in the Global Times, and it's something our show has been talking about, is that it's very likely that we're going in the direction of escalation in Ukraine. Because Russia is determined not to lose, and the United States is more than happy to use Ukrainians as a proxy to fight its war against Russia. And it's actually perfect for the United States because if Americans were dying in Ukraine right now, there would be hundreds of thousands of people in the streets demanding the end of the war. But if you can get all the bleeding to be done by Ukrainians, all the suffering, then, you know, the U.S. government can basically tell the American people, hey, just keep shopping. Don't fret about it. Don't think about it. So it's kind of perfect for the U.S., and the U.S. is determined to not lose either. So it seems to me that China, while staying with Russia in this and also having a nuanced position diplomatically, would rightfully be concerned that we are on the path of escalation. And this has been the message of the socialist program, this program as well, that absent really strong anti-war positions coming from people in the United States where we are or in Europe, 
the likelihood is that we're going to have an escalating war. And that's dangerous for everyone. And of course, for China, which mainly wants peace, also very, very dangerous. No, I absolutely agree. And I think at this point, I mean, as we all know, it's in the case of U.S., it's a very perverted situation because at the same time, this is the strategic geopolitical interest of U.S. is to weaken Russia, is to weaken China, is to try to create rifts between both. Also try to create rifts between China, Russia and the rest of the global south. And at the same time, we know that the military industry in the United States right now is one of the key industries of the country. And actually, if you think about the role of manufacturing in the U.S. globally, this is probably the only sector beyond the chips is the only sector where U.S. has a big hegemony. Actually, chips is different because chips are still produced mostly in China. And we know, I mean, the size, I mean, your audience has been discussing this for years. What is the size of military budget in the U.S.? So it's also that this is a very perverted situation because, I mean, huge interest in the U.S. to escalate this and even to escalate in terms of the not necessarily a war, a conflict with China right now, but just this tension, the escalate of tension and the perspective of a possibility of a war, it's already enough to get more budgets in U.S. So this is also something that's going to be very dangerous in the next years. And of course, China and Russia are very worried about that. Yes, that's true. War is good business in the United States, the main business. And now using Ukraine as a pretext, military spending is off the charts. I mean, the official number is about $840 billion per year, which is far greater than the People's Republic of China, but it's more than 10 times greater than Russia. And at the same time, the U.S. has initiated military war exercises not far from China, but their ostensible target is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, North Korea. So the U.S. has re-inaugurated massive war exercises. They call them war games, but they're not games. They're not funny. They simulate the invasion and destruction and decapitation of the leadership in North Korea. And at the same time, Marco, Russia and China have also had very major military exercises around in the same time period, sort of towards the end of August, I believe. I mean, it was interesting, the symmetry that the U.S. simulating the invasion and destruction of North Korea in the Pacific and Russia and China, and I believe India also participated in some of those military exercises. I mean, that is also, in addition to military preparation for Russia and China, it's also something of a statement, or it certainly seemed like it. Yeah, you know, the India's position is, it's probably one of the most important things in the chessboard right now, geopolitical chessboard. And it's also interesting to notice, I was talking to some friends in, in India that also follow politics very closely. They were saying that, for instance, since the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine, there was a sort of like de-escalation of news against China in big part of the media. I mean, you know that China and India had has been, I mean, big tensions in the last couple of years and I mean, many, many years, but in the last two years, again, there was a lot of tensions in the border. And actually, a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago, there was the first time in a couple of years that both agreed to withdraw the troops 
from the like right in the border. And also, I think what's happening in India right now, I mean, India has been very close allied to the U.S. in the last decades. But at the same time, India is very close allied with Russia. So this puts India in this very particular position. I mean, Russia is the biggest provider of weapons to India, for instance. And even India, I don't know right now, but I remember a few months ago, there was already a discussion in the Congress to put sanctions on India because India was refusing to stop buying weapons and jet fighters from Russia, etc., and in missiles. And I think the tension, clearly the tension between India and U.S. increased a lot in the last months since India refused also to follow the sanctions against Russia. I mean, even you saw the Indian foreign relations minister giving very strong speeches against especially Europe, but also U.S. say, no, we're not going to follow your sanctions because this is a suicide for us. We need Russia fertilizers. We need Russia energy. We need Russia food. And we are very good partners. I mean, remember, India and Russia are together both in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the BRICS. So it's also interesting to see in this whole escalation of tensions now between China and U.S., how much Russia is a sort of like a mediator between also between China and India. And again, the arrogance of United States, it's also putting maybe India closer now to Russia and even closer to China right now, because, I mean, of course, they don't <laughs> they don't love each other. But I think India might start to recognize that their interests are not the same as the United States. And actually, it's becoming the opposite. Yeah, so let's talk for a quick moment about BRICS since you've mentioned it. Brazil, Russia, India, China. Originally, it was BRIC. It was an organization of these four major big countries. And of course, you are from Brazil, so you would have a you know, firsthand familiarity with BRIC. And then BRIC became BRICS meaning South Africa, another major power that also had a government that, while it has many, many contradictions, also was part of the post-apartheid, post, you know, the apartheid regime that had been completely backed by U.S. imperialism. It's a successor government. And so South Africa has retained and maintained an independent political position. So, at the BRICS meeting, Marco, other countries came, and there's talk about BRICS maybe adding some more letters. Anyway, let's just talk about that. Yeah, first of all, I think, so talking about Brazil, for me, it's impossible not to talk about the elections on Sunday. We have, finally, we have the chance to get rid of uh, extreme right-wing, tragical president we have called Bolsonaro on Sunday. It's actually the first round. But Lula still, I mean, has chance, has real chance to win in the first round. Meaning, in the case of Brazil, if a candidate has more than 50%, 50% plus one vote in the first round, he wins the election. If not, then Lula and Bolsonaro would go to the runoff on the end of the month, October 30th. So, yeah, is BRICS coming back? I would say most likely yes, because most likely Lula will win. We are working hard for this in Brazil right now. And of course, I mean, Lula had many already speeches in the last year, couple of years, highlighting the reinforcing 
the importance, the strategic importance of BRICS. And remember, actually, BRICS was initiated during Lula's government. And actually, Brazil was one of the great pushers of BRICS since the beginning. So, but what happened to BRICS, of course, since Dilma's coup in 2016, when the right wing took power and then the extreme right wing took power in elections two years after that, Brazil actually withdrew from the BRICS. I mean, we're still part formally, but we are not actually working to push this platform, this group. So again, I believe that Lula winning, we're going to have Brazil back and also South Africa, also because of the conflict again, this conflict is also sort of like speeding up some of the trends, the political and economic trends of the last couple of years. I also believe that South Africa is giving some signs that will be also stronger in BRICS in the next couple of years. And again, BRICS is super strategic at this point. As you mentioned, there's already discussions for the expansion. Argentina, for instance, officially requested, and China already gave a sort of support, official support from that. You also have countries like Nigeria, like Senegal, even Turkey, Saudi Arabia, many countries also announcing their intention to join BRICS. So probably one of the consequences of the escalation of the aggressions of the West powers would be also the expansion of the BRICS. And just one parenthesis on that is that the same is happening in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization right now. I mean, Shanghai Cooperation Organization was founded in 2001 with China, Russia, and the four like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. But in the last, I mean, it was already at India and Pakistan a few years ago, but Iran also joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And there's a lot of countries also discussing, even Turkey. I mean, Turkey, which is a NATO member, is announcing its intention to join organization led by China and Russia. So I think this is showing some of the trends for the next years. And I think, I believe this regional platforms, they are going to get really stronger. Marco, let's talk about, again, because none of this what we're about to talk about is actually in the Western media, or maybe it's in trade journals or so on. But I want to talk about some of the specific agreements that Russia and China have made in the recent period, including in the period in the last few months, when, again, all the speculation in the Western media is that China is going to break up with Russia. There are numerous economic and scientific programs and contracts that have been signed. I want to first start with something regarding energy. Of course, you know, Russian gas was key to Europe. Russian petroleum products also key for Europe. A lot of that has been either completely suspended or will be soon. European energy prices are off the charts. That's politically destabilizing governments and countries in Europe. Of course, there's also the attendant rise in food prices and food shortages, which are impacting people all over the world, not just in Europe, but in Africa, throughout the global South. But the U.S. expected or predicted that the Russian economy was going to collapse under the impact of the noose that had been tightened, the global sanctions, the blockade, the economic blockade on Russia. That clearly has not happened. But let's start and go through some of these agreements, and we can take them one by one. They're very significant, and they're also long-term agreements that are being forged right now or just recently between Russia and China. 
Let's start with energy, for instance. Sure. Energy, <laughs> you probably remember that that was a, a very also curious situation that I think maybe two or three days after the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine, so there's a lot of, of course, discussion about the Nord Stream, especially the two, that by the way, this, I mean, this is sabotage, huge sabotage. I just read that Russia is calling an extraordinary meeting of the Security Council of United Nations because of this sabotage. But anyway. Just to jump in on you there, and then you can keep going. You know, in the Western media, where we are in the United States, most of the reports are suggesting that Russia sabotaged the Nord Stream pipeline. And here you have Russia going to the UN demanding an extraordinary session to talk about who actually is responsible. Yeah, that's not surprising, right? Not surprising at all. But anyway, going back, so a few days after the beginning of the conflict, they announced a big, huge, actually, agreement, which is the construction of a new pipeline from Russia to China. It's called Power of Siberia 2. What basically Power of Siberia 2 will be, it will have the capacity of 50 billion cubic meters of gas a year, which is more or less the capacity of Nord Stream 2. So that's not also a coincidence. And actually, part of the plan is to divert part of the gas that would go to Europe, as previous agreed, but this now would be directed to China. Actually, if you get all the agreements between China and Russia, the estimation for the next 30 years is a $400 billion agreement only in gas, only in natural gas. And this is also for China strategic, not only because China needs a lot of gas and we need more and more in the next years and decades, but also because, for instance, Australia is one of the biggest providers of natural gas to China right now. And we all know how much Australia had in the last years also followed U.S. bashing on China. Let's see now. Actually, they have a new government. It's still not 100% clear if this new government from Labour Party, if they are going to keep the same policy. But anyway, China has been already doing some of these measures to decrease its dependency of Australia, not only gas, but also other products. So this is one of the agreements. But you have like major agreements. First of all, oil. Saudi Arabia has been the major provider of China in the last years. But this year, also because of what's happening right now in Ukraine, Russia increased a lot of the exports to China and is already the main provider of oil to China. So if you go to coal, it will be the same. There's a also recent agreement announced actually last year between the Russian company Ilgagol and the Chinese Fujian Guohan Ocean Shipping that expected to ship, for instance, 30 million tons of coal to China in 2023. That's going to double the current exports from Russia to China. And we know that coal in China, there is a tendency in the next years also to decrease because of all the agreements of carbon neutrality, etc. But at this point, for instance, in energy, it's clear that Russia will be more and more a huge provider to China. So it appears when you're talking about these kind of long-term major agreements in strategic areas of the economy, especially energy, that this is a long-term relationship and it's an integration of the two economies. I mean, China was an export-oriented economy mainly 
looking to Western countries in the past, and it still wants to, of course, have access to the global economy, including the West. But this is a, a marked shift, a strategic shift in economic integration and economic planning. You know, the irony here is that, you know, at the time of the Chinese Revolution in 1949, the Soviets and the Chinese economies were in many ways integrated and there was lots of support and Soviet economic advisors came to China. But because of the ideological and political struggle, Nikita Khrushchev wrongly, I think terribly, stupidly, withdrew economic advisors from China in retaliation because China wouldn't subordinate itself politically to the leadership decisions in Moscow. But here you have, in spite of the fact that Russia is now led by a pro-capitalist government, I mean, Putin is not a communist. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union is no more. China is ruled by a communist party. In spite of the fact that there's not an ideological sort of position that keeps them together, as happened in 1949 and in the 1950s, even though the ideological factor is gone, there is, one, the mutual need to be working together, two, a common foe, meaning the aggressiveness of the United States, and third, Marco, these countries, because of the way the post-World War II era shaped up, they have experience with each other. So it's not like starting from scratch. There's a lot of experience in terms of economic integration. I think these multiple factors have to be sort of evaluated when we think about the durability of the Russian-Chinese relationship right now. No, you're absolutely right. Let me tell you one story that it's also not very famous still, but the level of integration of China and Russia in the borders, for instance, it's something amazing. I mean, there's almost 5,000 kilometers of border between China and Russia. So it's a lot of shared territory. So let me give you one example. Fantastic. In China, there's a, a province called Heilongjiang in the north. So there's a city called Haihe. It's part of a, a free trade zone in that region, that province that China is organizing. Is, is. So in the border is Haihe, the Chinese side. And let me see, because I think at this point my Mandarin is better than my Russian, but Blagovishensk is the city in Russia. So they are so connected right now that there is actually no border. There is no passport control between both cities. They have a, a population, combined population of 1.7 million people, not so big yet, but absolutely connected by bridge, by ferry, by cable car. And guess what? In the schools right now, Chinese schools are teaching Russian and the Russian schools are teaching Chinese. I think that this case is a very symbolic not only symbolic, it's also objectively, economically, but it's also a politically, culturally, a symbol of the integration, the so-called Eurasian integration. And I think China and Russia, the level of strategic partnership right now, it's so deep. And there's so many things that we don't even know it's happening. I mean, if you don't follow all the, I don't know, I mean, for instance, this information I got from a very interesting website that I would recommend for those who want to follow more China. It's called China Briefing. It's actually a consulting company. It's a private company here in China, but that gives you like very comprehensive reports on many political, mostly economic topics of China and China relations with other countries. So this is, I think, is the level of the integration. And actually, this is not only these two cities. 
There's other cities also between China and Russia that are experimenting already this sort of integration, including in the level of no passport control. So this gives you a little bit of the hint of what's happening in the next years. In 1944, 1945, when World War II was coming to a close, and most of the European capitalist countries and Japan were in ruins, the United States stepped in and became the anchor for the revival of world capitalism. And it had a very carefully constructed and thought through approach to creating a, a new world order after the collapse of the old world order collapsed by the magnitude of violence in World War II, the destruction of World War II. And some of the pillars of that new world order were, one, the creation of the United Nations, the creation of the International Monetary Fund, the creation of the World Bank. There was also the decision that was made under the influence of U.S. power to make the dollar the world reserve currency. That was at the so-called Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. And of course, the fifth factor was the revival of the capitalist governments and the capitalist economies in Europe and in Japan, meaning friend and foe alike from World War II were revived by the Marshall Plan and by U.S. policy, meaning that they were going to revive rather than punish their defeated adversaries, bring them into the world market. But the new quid pro quo was that they would function essentially as junior partners for the United States foreign policy, especially when it came to its relations with the socialist world. So when you look at those many factors, those five factors for the revival of that new world order, one of them is the privilege that the U.S. dollar printed by the United States, by the U.S. Treasury, becomes the world reserve currency. That's an enormous privilege. The rest of the world has to trade and buy dollars, but the U.S. can print them, literally. And so the question of dollar domination has always been very, very, very significant, along with the other factors that I mentioned. What about the issue of de-dollarization as a way to check or overcome U.S. dominance? Of course, I think in some ways this has been overplayed by those who want to have the world become more equal. They're, they're hoping for the end of the dollar monopoly, the dollar power over the rest of the world. But even if they're exaggerating it, there are important developments in terms of de-dollarization right now between Russia and China. Let's talk about that if you could. Absolutely, Brian. I mean, to be honest, this is one of the topics that I'm most interested in right now, because I might be a little bit on this team that you just joke about it, that people that probably like rooting a lot for an alternative to the dollar. But it's true. A lot of is going on right now. I mean, even especially after, again, the beginning of the conflict. And I just wanted to say, I mean, you, I think you were also suggesting that I think probably 20, 30 years from now, we're probably going to remember February 24th as the beginning of this new world order. So anyway, what's been happening, I don't know, sometimes it's even hard to follow the number of new agreements without dollar that are being made since the beginning of the conflict. Because of course, what happened is that, I mean, Russia was like, had half of its international reserves stolen by United States and Europe. This is one of the weapons that they have. It's actually because we, we talked a lot about 
nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in the beginning of this show. But actually, maybe the most important weapon of mass destruction that the United States has, it's a dollar. It's this capacity of just push a button and to destroy whole, whole countries like they did, of course, with Cuba for the last decades, like they did with Venezuela, like they did with Iran, like they did with Afghanistan, and now they are trying to do with Russia. But the difference with Russia is, of course, I mean, it's easy to do this with a country that, for instance, like Venezuela, doesn't have much production beyond, for instance, the oil, or countries like Iran also that are very fragile in the economy. But you cannot do that in a country that is a huge producer, the major producer of energy and food and fertilizer. So I think this is also one of the things. But going back to this, there's a number of new agreements. So for instance, China and Russia, I mean, last year they had, I think, between 17 to 18% of their trade was made in rubles and in UN. But this is just one of the aspects. For instance, right now, even in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, There were many new agreements that were announced between Russia and Turkey, between Russia and Iran. Again, between China and Russia, that's Gazprom, which is the biggest provider of energy in Russia, agreed to sell natural gas, like billions of cubic meters to China, in both UN and rubble. And why this is important? Because this is one of the biggest contracts of energy in the world. And meaning then that from now on, there's not going to be dollar in this negotiation. So, I mean, there's a number of agreements being made and even discussions about, for instance, how to push for more trade between regional platforms without the dollar. For instance, like in Brazil right now, this is a big debate. It's been uh, debated. Even Lula announced that they are discussing either a new currency or new mechanism that will allow them to do a trade without dollar. So there's many issues also in terms, for instance, even the BRICS has a platform, has an agreement called the Contingent Reserve Agreement, which is a fund of $100 billion dollars that provides the members of the BRICS, if they have any issues with liquidity with the international reserves, like Argentina is having a hard time right now, they can assess this fund. It's a $100 billion fund. So this is one of the, also the key issues because you know that how much IMF was a big tool of U.S. domination in the global south in the last decades. Countries got into debt. You don't have dollars to do trade and you need to go to IMF to ask for help. But of course, they come with the whole combo of austerity. You have to privatize your national assets. You have to cut your budgets for education, health, etc. So also the fact that the countries are organizing these funds in the last years are also a big um, defense against United States domination. So I think the this issue of de-dollarization, of course, U.S. still has like 60% of international reserves are in U.S. dollars. And 80% of the trade is still done, at least until last year, in U.S. dollar. But it's clear right now for the countries that they need to create an alternative. It will take some time, but probably, I would say, faster than we expected three, four years ago. As we start to move towards the end, Marco, I do want to ask you about outer space. And, you know, there was the Outer Space Treaty that was signed in the mid-1960s, where the major powers that had the capacity to reach outer space agreed that outer space would never be militarized. 
and also that it would be subject to the regulation between governments, that one government wouldn't try to monopolize, use outer space as a platform for primacy. The U.S. has basically gotten, you know, even though it didn't cancel the treaty, the way it's canceled many of the other Cold War treaties, like the ABM Treaty, the INF Treaty, it didn't cancel the Outer Space Treaty, but basically it ignored it. And the U.S. is trying to get primacy militarily and economically in outer space. And the cooperation between Russia and formerly the Soviet Union and the U.S. for outer space which again happened as the Cold War began to, to thaw, as there became detente and rapprochement and better relations between the socialist bloc or the Soviet Union and the U.S. Now there's like unmitigated efforts by the U.S. to gain primacy and also to privatize outer space. But there are new and important developments where Russia and China have also agreed to work together in terms of the development or the projection of power from the planet Earth into outer space. As we start to wrap up, because time is running out, I did want to cover this topic and get your thoughts about that. Yeah, this is a fantastic also story. Particularly, I mean, this is something I think many of us nerds of science fiction movies, this is a kind of issue that triggers some very deep feelings. But anyway, so what happened is that, as you said, in the last years, of course, Russia and United States have been cooperated a lot. Even the International Space Station that we have today is mostly a cooperation between the United States and, and Russia. But it's two interesting things. First, about this station, this current one, Russia has already said that it's not going to renovate the agreement with the United States. And by the way, this station will stop operating in 2024. And guess what? China is now building their own station called Tianwen, which actually recently also was joined by Russia in terms of the future of the project. And also it's very interesting because China also announced last year that this station will be open to collaboration with all the Global South countries. They didn't say that the United States and Europe are invited. I'm sorry, guys, this is not your party. But there's also a very interesting agreement that was done last year between China and Russia to build an international scientific lunar station. They are basically planning to have the first lunar station in 2030. This is the prospect, and it's going to be a joint project between China and Russia. And it's also interesting because actually U.S. and Russia, they had been discussing the last year a project, a U.S. project called Lunar Gateway that was exactly to do the same, to do a station in the moon. And of course, with the escalation of the conflict, this was like last year, Russia already said that they quit. They basically quit the project. So for one side, of course, we know that we have, as you said, U.S. more and more with this perspective of privatizing even space operations. And we have Elon Musk, for instance, as a big one of the biggest symbols and entrepreneurs of this crazy idea. But it's very interesting because we know how much how strategic is cooperation, how is all the space exploration and the fact, again, that China and Russia are working together both in the space station right now and in this new project for the next year in the moon, just give another example 
of how much they are not thinking about the next six months. They are thinking about the next 10, 20 years, which, by the way, China usually does. Now I think, I mean, I believe that they have been doing this together more and more. Marco, I want to thank you so much for joining the Socialist Program. I think, you know, none of us have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen in six months. We don't know what will happen in the coming week. There's all kinds of variables. But I think what's important about our conversation and your contribution is that we're learning the things that we can't really understand if we're getting our information and perspective from Western capitalist pro-imperialist media outlets, which basically are designed to break up the relationship between China and Russia, looking for any vulnerability, looking for any potential difference, trying to exaggerate it, trying to provoke it. Because actually the division of Russia and China and the global South is key, has always been key to colonial or neo-colonial domination over the rest of the planet. And so when we all of us who live, say, in the United States, read newspapers here or watch TV here, we have to recognize that we're watching propaganda. And it's part of the propaganda war designed by U.S. imperialism to break up the alliance between Russia and China, which, again, is not an ideological alliance, but it's also not an alliance without its own tradition because it did exist in the key parts, the formative parts of the Cold War. So that's why... Marco, I think this story, this kind of information is so vital. I want to thank you for joining our show. And I also, as we go out, I want to encourage everyone to become aware of the Tricontinental Institute for Research and Dongsheng News Collective and to subscribe to your newsletters, which are so important. Real quick, if somebody wanted to subscribe to Dongsheng News, how do they do it? Well, they just go to Dongsheng News. Com and they will find our website. And then you click on the top right and you can receive by email. But we also in social media now, by the way, this is something that we have to discuss. We need a global South platforms. We have to get rid of Twitter and YouTube because, I mean, we know how much it's a weapon also of US. So just basically go to Twitter. We also have Dongsheng News at Dongsheng News, also in Instagram. So just follow us and you get lots of important news from China every day. Marco Fernandez, thank you so much. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.